Our reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I, may, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you're seated, good morning. As you know, I'm Brant. I am uh, delighted to introduce myself as an elder and pastor of Christ City Church this morning, which is new. And I get to bring the word of God to you. It's my pleasure. It's my joy. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too. This morning, we're in a series entitled, We Are Christ City. And in this series, we've been trying to lay down some bedrock for you, get down to the, the core DNA, if you will, of who we are as Christ City Church. So if you've wondered for a while now what it is we're really doing here, I hope this series is helping you to see that, to make it plain for you. It's a four-part series. We're too deep, so this is number three. And in the first, uh, in the first sermon, Fred took some time to explain to us the, the who. Who are we as a church? And also the why. Why are we doing what we do as a church? talked about who we are, and he went through some passages of scripture in, in Ephesians, and also showed us the glory of God is our purpose and our great joy that we're after uh, as a church. And then second, last week, he spoke about what we do together as a church. What is it we do? And we went through our values as Christ City Church, we, that we're uh, centered on Christ, that everything has to start there, centered on Jesus Christ and his work, that we are grounded on his word. On the word of God, this is not, not our word, but a word that's been given to us from beyond us and outside of us by the grace of God. We're grounded on his word, but we're also grounded in history. We're not the first church that's ever done this. There's 2,000 years of, of church history that come before us, and we pay attention to that. And we're also grounded on the culture of the city, in the culture of the city. And that's something that Fred said I'd talk about this week, and here I am, we're going to talk about that this week. But Fred also said in that sermon that we are uh, gathered for worship, word, and sacrament on Sundays. We're gathered for community uh, on our community groups, but also beyond that, that we are a church that gathers together as believers. And finally, that we are a church that's sent. We're a church on a mission, seeking to obey Jesus when he called us to teach those around us what he taught us, that we might listen and, and hear and believe and be saved. So the next two sermons now are my responsibility this today and, uh, and then next week. And we're not looking at the who and the why and the what any longer. Now we're going to look at the how. And the how, as we jump in, I want to just say this as an aside. It it might come across at times as we look at the how, that this is all 100% on us to grow Jesus' church. And and there is an aspect that we have to get to work. We're the ones that God has appointed to this task. That being said, let us never forget in this sermon and in the next sermon that it is Jesus who promised that he would build his church. It is his work that we are about. He will do it. He is faithful. We can trust him. So the how, how do we fulfill this incredible mission that we've been given to make disciples in Vancouver? Two massively important ways 
are through our contextualization to the city and through our discipleship. So this sermon will be contextualization. It's a big word. I'll explain it to you in a moment. Discipleship will be next week's sermon. So no fancy intro. We're just going to jump straight in this morning. And as I do so, I will give you two points, though, to kind of hold in mind. These are the two points that actually we need to, to hold intention together as we wrestle with this. The two points that, that we talk about will be that, that we need to contextualize, preach the gospel in the context of Vancouver, but to never do so in a way that we fail to become a counterculture in Vancouver. So context, point one, counterculture, point two, and we'll jump in. So Fred said last week we're committed as a church to be grounded in the culture of our city in Vancouver. And in other words, we can say we are committed to preach the gospel in the context of Vancouver. We're, we're here in Vancouver. We're preaching it here. We're not preaching it somewhere else. Or to use that larger word I used a moment ago, we're committed to contextualization. I have a definition for you. I'll put it up here. Um, contextualization is simply this. Taking the timeless truths of the gospel... Not our words, but God's words, which he's given to us. And applying them to various cultures. Taking the timeless truths of the gospel and applying them to various cultures. And this is what happens when we contextualize well. The, the message stays the same. The message stays the same. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, which Fred read for us in his first sermon to us, say the same. Paul writes, there is one body... And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So when contextualization happens, the message stays the same. There's still one church filled with the, the one spirit of God that dwells within his people. One body of doctrine that we practice and we hold to as a true faith. One baptism that we practice, uh, serving God, the father of all who is one. That happens. But each local church in the various neighborhoods that, that preach the gospel message in the world, they begin to do something incredible. They begin to take on the local flavor of the neighborhoods that they're in, if they're doing this well. Maybe you've experienced this. If you've traveled and you've been to churches across the world. I've had this awesome privilege that I've been able to worship with a number of churches around the world. Uh, in Kentucky, in Amitla, Oaxaca, in Vermont, in Zambia, Dubai, Lucknow, India, Singapore, and more. And these churches that I've gone to, they're all clearly Christian churches, practicing the same things, believing the same things, following the same Bible, following the same one God and Lord who is overall. But they do so in the flavor of their own neighborhoods. And because of that, think of how strange and how weird it would be if a church in, say, Lucknow, India, if it was just picked up from that context and dropped on the corner of 4th and U here in Kitsilano. It would be weird. It'd be a little bit strange. That's not how we do things. But there's a question here, maybe. You might, be, you might be wondering, okay, weird, Brent, that's one thing, but is it wrong? Is it wrong? What would be so bad about a Lucknow India church in Vancouver? Well, let me say this. I think it would be bad because it wouldn't help the people that live around you and 4th hear the gospel message very well. There might be some obstacles in the way to them hearing the gospel message. 
When we work to contextualize well, our goal is this. In the words of a professor that I've benefited from a lot, who has spent much of his life teaching the gospel in foreign contexts, he writes this. I'm going to appropriate his words a little bit for us this morning. If there is any offense in our presentation of the gospel, we want it to be the offense of the cross, not the offense of foreignness, Zane Pratt. I'll read that again. If there is any offense in our presentation of the gospel, we want it to be the offense of the cross. We want to communicate so well that nobody's confused about what they're rejecting if they reject it. And that our foreignness and our strangeness as particular people would not be what's offending. That's what we want. When we say this, we're just saying we want to be committed as a church to removing unnecessary obstacles to the preaching of the gospel in Vancouver. And again, to say that just another way, we're just recognizing that Vancouver in 2019 is not Alabama in 1990. And that if I was up here saying y'all all the time and wearing a big baggy suit and the walls are pink, it would be a little bit distracting. It'd be a little bit distracting. You know, believe it or not, one example I can share with you <clears throat> of <clears throat> excellent contextualization. Sorry, there's a frog in my throat this morning, apparently, um, is McDonald's. <clears throat> but if all you've ever eaten is uh, McDonald's from Vancouver, you don't realize that McDonald's menu is not static. They actually have a menu that fits the cultures that they have gone and, and globalized to. So if you only eat Vancouver McDonald's, you miss out on the taro root pie in India or in, uh, in China or the filet o ebi shrimp burger in Japan. Or some of my favorites, I have slides for these for you, so don't get too hungry. Um, the McCurry pan in India. It's got a, a nice edible non bread bowl that it's served in. That's pretty awesome. Or the Nan that's, that's my attempt at German pronunciation, in Germany. You know, why have one Bavarian sausage when you can have three? That's what I always ask. <clears throat> and the bubblegum squash McFlurry in Australia and New Zealand. And even that, even that title actually is contextualization because squash is the word that they use in Australia and New Zealand for marshmallow. Why though? Why has McDonald's contextualized its menu? Well, because McDonald's has a goal. This great and awesome goal of reaching the world with the good news of the golden arches. And to do that well, they know that they can't just sell hamburgers to Americans. They got to do something else. They got to get the good news of the golden arches out beyond that. And when that happens, there's a result. When they, when they accommodate, when they contextualize, there's a good result. As those Australians and New Zealanders eat their bubblegum squash McFlurry, they become a little more comfortable with the message of McDonald's. They feel they've been, they've been spoken to in their language. It's not foreign to them. And they keep coming back for more. So in a similar way, hear this this morning. Hear this. This is important. When it comes to our preaching of the gospel, we must contextualize to the people and the place that God in his providence has put us in. So that we re remove any unnecessary obstacles to the gospel in our own neighborhoods. So there's your brief summary of contextualization for you this morning. But you're probably wondering, hey Brent, I've noticed you haven't opened the Bible. And I'm wondering what the Bible has to say about this. I hope you're asking that. That's a great question. Let's go back to the Bible for all the things that we're talking about here. Hold us accountable to the Bible, Christ City Church. 
The Bible actually does say a lot about contextualization, though. It does. For example, the Apostle Paul himself contextualized. And he did it because he knew that it wasn't something that he could faithfully choose not to do. Contextualization is not optional. It's essential. It's essential in the preaching of the gospel. It's a gospel matter. It's a love matter. It's a matter of being like Jesus, being willing to be a servant of all in order that the gospel might be heard, giving up one's rights. Just look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 27. We've read it already. I'll read it again. For though I am free from all, this is Paul writing, who was a missionary uh, to the world outside of Judea, preaching the gospel. He says, I am free from all. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you, do you feel Paul's heart there? Love is his motivation. He's desperate to see the people around him come to share in the blessings that we have in Christ. He wants that for them. And to that end, Paul says, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. What he's saying in this passage is that he's free from bearing the obligations of a particular culture. He's free from living under a particular set of human laws or human customs. In the gospel, Paul knows that he is a free human being, that he's been accepted by Jesus, by God who is love and who has loved him more than he could possibly ever tell or imagine. He knows that. He doesn't need to strive to win anyone's approval. Paul doesn't need to strive to fit in with anybody. God has accepted him in Christ. But that radical freedom in Christ that Paul has expresses itself a particular way. If you remember from our Galatians series in chapter 5, verse 14, we read the passage and we preached on it where, where Paul encouraged the Galatian church not to use their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love to serve one another. In the same way here, Paul says, I use my freedom to serve in love, not to insist on my own preference. You know, Paul could have not done this. He could have said, I'm a free man in Christ. Therefore, when I get to Macedonia as a Jewish missionary from Judea, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to arrive and I'm going to demand kosher food prepared from all of my hosts. Or when they ask me to move on a Saturday, I'll say, you know what? I'm a Sabbath-keeping Jew. Sorry, not sorry. You know, you're going to have to ask somebody else. Or he could have been a little arrogant in it even, in his own cultural preferences, which I think we can be actually. Reflect on this yourself. He could have said, you know, hey, that's not how we do it in Judea. Let me show you Macedonians how things are really done, how food is really cooked, how coffee is really drunk, and how life is really lived. 
I'll show you how we do it, what the right way is. Paul doesn't do that. Because Paul becomes a servant, willingly giving up his right to live as a self-actualized Jew in Macedonia, or in Galatia, or in Bithynia, and humbling himself beneath, beneath the cultural preferences and customs of the people that he came to serve with the message about Jesus. And we're called to do the same. And we're called to do the same. We have a problem, though. Because Paul says, For though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant. You know, servant's kind of a sanitized word. Paul says, Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a slave. That I might win more of them. We have a problem because slaves don't have rights. Servants give up their rights to serve. And that's hard. I don't know about you, but I don't like giving up my rights. That confronts us. That confronts something deep inside of me. But we will never fully and faithfully bring the gospel into our own neighborhoods until we give up our rights and become servants of those who don't know Jesus. So let me ask you a question this morning. We're going to spend some time drilling down into this. What rights are you holding on to that keep you from fully contextualizing to Vancouver as a servant seeking to serve with the love of Jesus and the truth of the gospel? What rights are you holding on to? Are you holding on to your right to pursue some kind of a version of the American dream? You know, I, I have to have a house, man. Like, I can't live in kids. You know, I have to have a garage. I have to have a parking spot, at least. <clears throat> I can't move into kids. I got to move somewhere else. I, you know, let me commute. Is God asking you to give that up to reach people with the gospel? What about the right to privacy? Vancouver living is dense urban living compared to, compared to many, many places in this world. And all this, the smells and the sounds that come with dense urban living can be part of what it's like to experience life here in Kitsilano. Are you holding on to your right for privacy? Instead of, instead of maybe using your loss of privacy as an opportunity to meet your neighbors, you bump into them all the time, for goodness sake. Why not have them over for dinner? Or what about the right to be easily understood? You know, when you engage with people who are different than you, as you must do in Vancouver, it's a diverse city, you realize that it's uncomfortable at times, isn't it? It's not like hanging out with your best friends. You know, these people, they understand me. Communication just kind of happens. You know, it's not, a, it's not a problem. These people over here, on the other hand, I mean, like, it's an effort. Like, our worldviews, our, our way of thinking about everything is different. It's hard. But if I'm going to engage the diverse peoples in my city, I need to make that effort. I need to start working at it and maybe give up some of my social comfort. You know, homogeneity is comfortable, but it can be an idol. If we're to contextualize well, another right we must surrender is our right to mental relaxation. If we're to live in Vancouver and actually reach out to our neighbors, we're going to have to start thinking. So Christ City, here's my plea to you. It's time to check out of the brain spa. And it's time to get a membership at your local brain gym. You need to start making an effort. You're going to have to start wrestling with issues that maybe you don't generally think about. 
I mean, your neighbors think an awful lot about the environment. Are you thinking about the environment? Are you looking at what the Bible says about the environment? You know, your neighbors think an awful lot about sexuality. What does the Bible say about sexuality? And how might you explain what the Bible says and seek to persuade them? Seek to show them the reasons behind what the Bible says and how they're good and for our flourishing as human beings. What about just taking the story of the way that God has reached into your life and saved you and thinking carefully about how can I, how can I share that with this person? I mean, he's done something incredible in my life. It wouldn't be that hard just for me to talk about it. But I need to think about how to do that. I need to think about how to do that. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 says this. It's a commandment for us. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared. That takes work. To make a defense, also work to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We're called to a gracious mental exertion to the glory of God, Christ City. Have you been preparing yourself? You know, if you haven't, if you haven't thought through these things or, or begun to think through, Fred and I would love to help you. We'd love to help you. We'd love to equip you. We'd love to give you some great resources that might help you as you prepare to check out of that brain spa and into that brain gym to be more faithful where we're at. Another thing, though, if, if we're to contextualize to Vancouver, you know, I think one of the best ways we could do that is through our hospitality. It's a lonely city. There's a need for people to love and to care for one another and to be in community together. And it's a command, after all, in the Bible. Hebrews 13, verse 2 says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. It's a command. And as an aside, the word for hospitality in Greek is literally, literally a combination of love and stranger. Love for strangers. That's what we're called to do. But if we're to be hospitable for Christ, we need to surrender our right to all the things that I've mentioned, but also our right to our calendars, to our recreational schedules, to our neat little organized houses, just so. You know, I have a diagnostic question. Have you built the walls of your house so high to keep you comfortable inside and to keep others out? If you've done that, let me challenge you. You haven't tried to be a servant of all. You're not trying to be a servant of your neighbors preaching the gospel to them. You haven't contextualized. We're called to be on mission for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's time to embrace that fact and in God's providence, recognize we're on mission here. And maybe start to give up our rights to try to build our lives somewhere else and embrace the fact that he's placed us here and use it to his glory. Paul said, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. What is God asking you this morning to give up? What right is he asking you to surrender, to be more faithful? <clears throat> Contextualization, it's a funny thing. There's a tension here. Maybe you feel it as I'm preaching. <clears throat> Maybe part of you has this like theological alarm bell ringing in the back of your head saying, yeah, 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 Brent, but, but can't I over-contextualize too? 
And wouldn't that be a problem? Well, the answer is yes, it would be a problem. And yes, you can over-contextualize. Which is why we need our second point this morning to look at the way that we're called not just to contextualize, but also to be a countercultural witness in Vancouver. There's many who have over-contextualized around us. Maybe you've seen some of these people. It happens. Maybe you felt the pressure. Because in case you haven't noticed, our culture is not really content with having a plurality of opinions in our culture. There's an impressive weight on you right now in Vancouver to toe the party line, to kind of get on the agenda, to go along with what is normal for Vancouverites to be going along with. As a result, many Christians have begun to abandon their Bibles, to abandon the gospel. Whole churches have begun to abandon the Bible and abandon the gospel. And let me just say, let's not be us against them pointing the finger at them. Let's be praying for those churches. Let's be asking that God might lead them to repentance and to greater faith in his word and in the gospel. But it's happening. There's something happening around us all the time. We need to be countercultural here in Vancouver. Because being a counterculture becomes the counterweight that keeps us from simply embracing the lostness and the fallenness of the culture all around us. It helps us not to assimilate to them, but to be present, deeply present as a witness about something so much better. So what does it mean to be countercultural as Christians in Vancouver? Well, to be countercultural is, on the one hand, to be deeply invested, to be present in our neighborhoods, but to be present as a witness, as salt, like Jesus told us to do in Matthew 5, 13. Look at this passage with me. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. When Jesus says that we're salt, he's saying that we're those who represent God in this world to our neighbors. Isn't that incredible? As those who represent God's character on earth, we're witnesses for him, pointing the way forwards as Christians to a true flourishing life in relationship with God. It's incredible. That's what we've been called to do. But if the salt loses its flavor, it's going to be thrown out. So how do we stay salty? What does stay salty, Vancouver, stay salty, stay savory, to be faithful as a countercultural Christian in Vancouver, we must hold fast to the first two of our values as Christ City Church. Do you remember what those were? Centered on Christ Jesus. Grounded in the Bible. I have another definition for you. Countercultural in Vancouver is to live deeply centered on Jesus and deeply grounded on the Bible. Only when we do that will we have an impact here. Over-contextualizing is tempting, but there's no impact there. Only this faithful witnessing to the glory and goodness of the God that we serve will have any effect. Another way to think about our call to be a salty counterculture in Vancouver is this. As Christians, we're called to be holy as God is holy. That means that we're called to live this, this new life that Jesus has given us, that we have in him, as those, again, who, who bear the very character of God in our lives. We represent him on earth. Look at this text, 1 Peter 14, 1 Peter chapter 1, 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The reality of our salvation, here's, this is the incredible good news of our salvation, is, is that we're being changed. It's that we aren't who we once were. It's that God has brought life into a place where there was only death in our lives. And Jesus' life is taking root now. And we're different than we were. We're being conformed to his image. Christians are then, by definition, countercultural because God has reached into the darkness and into sin and death. And he's pulled us out. And he's making us like him. That's incredible. That's the good news that, that we can be different, that God is going to stamp his life and is stamping and has stamped and will finally stamp his life on us. We're called to be holy. But when we abandon the word of God, when we abandon the gospel, we're not going to do that. We won't be able to be that holy witness in Vancouver. We just display more and more of what we already have and hasn't been any help at all. Just, just more and more of us in our sin. Not the divine gospel that is bearing fruit. We'll live faithfully as salt, as holy people, only by holding fast to the gospel and to the word of God. But when we do that, true life and true goodness in relationship with God, you know what happens? It's, it's tasted on the streets in Vancouver. It's tasted. It's palpable. The fragrance of life. The fragrance of what God has done in a world full of death. It wafts down the alleyways of Vancouver with a sweeter smell than the finest eatery. It's attractive. It's beautiful. Christ City, hear this. Vancouver doesn't need any more lukewarm, unsalty, unholy Christians who've abandoned their Bibles and the gospel. What Vancouver needs are Christians who love and treasure and obey the word of God. Who shine forth the glory and the holiness of their God in their lives. Who share the gospel to all around them. You know, if you're not a Christian here this morning, can I just talk to you for a second? Because I'm going to grant to you that that sounds pretty strange. That sounds pretty bold. And maybe you're offended by that. How can you possibly say that what Vancouver needs is more faithful Christians? But let me say this. Vancouver does need a faithful witness to who Jesus is and what he has done. So I'm going to ask you, put your incredulity aside just for a moment. And just listen to this. Why is that? Because only the message of the Bible helps us to see who we really are. Only the message of the Bible can direct us to our true purpose as human beings. Human beings were created, the Bible teaches, to worship God. To revel in his glory, to love him, to know him deeply and intimately. To have his own character take root inside of us and to love others as we are loved by him. And the reason we fail, I think, with our purpose the reason we fail to find satisfaction, and maybe right now the, the reason you fail to find satisfaction in your own life is because we fail to orient our lives to the Creator's purpose for us to find our, our home in Him. To find a sense of rest and home and wholeness and purpose in who we are 
as worshipers of him. And apart from the gospel restoring us to relationship with the God of the Bible, we inevitably misuse ourselves. It's like we have a set of operating instructions and we've, like, we're just searching for it, trying to figure out what we are and how to operate, and we can't find it, aside from, from this message. We were created to love God and to love others. And without him, we inevitably invert our purpose and live with a deep sense of this abiding love for ourselves instead. That's so corrupted and false and twisted and empty. Have you felt that? I know that well. The twisting of my loves towards me. There's no satisfaction there. Maybe a little bit for a little while, but nothing lasting. We need the gospel message of Christianity because only it is a message that leads us out of self-love and into the love of God. We need the gospel message so that our reality is restored to his reality, so that our being is renewed in relationship to, to his being, to function as it was designed to in this radical love for him and love for others. That's why we need this message. And brothers and sisters, if we're going to do that well, we must be countercultural. And we must be contextual in this city. We need, to, we need to do both. Faithfully contextual, faithfully countercultural. So as we wrap up this morning, do you get a sense, as you feel the weight of this sermon, do you get a sense that this is hard? This is hard. It is hard. In fact, on your own, it's impossible. So full disclosure, I have given you an impossible task this morning. On your own, you can't love people well enough to be motivated to give up your rights to serve them. On your own, you can't stay faithful to Jesus and his words enough to be his faithful presence in Vancouver. You can't do it. But here's the good news. You don't have to do it on your own. The spirit of the one who is salt and who is holy And who contextualized better than you or I ever could. He's at work in you. He's making you more like him. Just look at Philippians chapter 2 with me. Look at the one who lives inside of you by his spirit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What did Jesus do to bring the gospel to us? Jesus left eternity. Jesus left perfection and beauty and in joy and happiness. Jesus added humanity to his deity. What is corruptible? What is broken? What is liable to get a cold? And what is vulnerable to getting crucified? The holy God of the universe took on to himself. Jesus, the sustainer of all things, became an infant needing sustenance. And he lived and he suffered and he died. And he didn't have to. 
He could have not saved us. But he didn't. He gave up his rights. Jesus contextualized to us so that we could be saved. Eugene Peterson even translates John, well, paraphrases John, chapter 1, verse 14, as this, Jesus moved into our neighborhood. Why? Because of John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Because of love. Hear this this morning. Love is the only adequate motivation for any of what we've been talking about this morning. And if, and if, you, don't, if you don't feel a love for your neighbors this morning, and a love for those in Vancouver, man, I'd ask you to start praying for them. I'd ask you to start asking God to give you a love for your neighbors. God, help me to love them. Help me to have the same heart that you do for them in me. Help me to love them. Because on our own, let's be honest, we don't have this love. We don't have it. We can't will ourselves to give up the rights that we will need to in order to bring the gospel to our neighbors more effectively. We can't do that. But God has the love we need. He is love. He did give up his rights, and through the gospel, he dwells within you. This is the gospel message. You've been more deeply loved and sacrificed for than you can possibly comprehend, and far more than you deserve. And because of the gospel, you're enabled to love as God has loved you. Because of the gospel, Christ City, we can contextualize far better than McDonald's. Because McDonald's doesn't love the people they contextualize to. We can do a better job. Only through the gospel are we enabled to be God's ambassadors, bringing him glory in Vancouver, faithfully contextualizing, faithfully holding to Christ and his word as a countercultural presence. We praise him for that. We thank him for that this morning. Let's thank him together. Oh, Father, we come before you and we just rejoice. Uh, we thank you that you are a God who hasn't left us in our mess and our sin, but you've entered into it, the person of Jesus to save us from it. We thank you. We praise you that once we were lost, but now we see. We thank you that you've raised us with Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would make us that fragrance of life to those who are perishing that you talk about in your word. Help us to be faithful here. Would you increase for the world to see at Christ City Church, Kitsilano? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.